Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. On this week's episode, I have a really wonderful conversation with the designer, artist, publisher, and teacher, Paul Suellis. For nearly 15 years, Paul operated his own design studio under the name Suellis Studios, uh, before transitioning in 2014 into a more expanded practice uh, under the name he uses now, Counterpractice. He also publishes the excellent project Library of the Printed Web and recently joined the faculty at RISD. In this episode, Paul and I talk about his own journey into design after studying architecture and wanting to be an architect and his recent move away from client work. We talk about the significance of blogging in his work and how that changed his practice. And we talk about this new idea of a counter practice. And uh, most interestingly for me, we talk about teaching and we talk about the classroom. We, both of us are fairly new teachers and we talk about how to help design students find their place in the field and introduce them to these new types of practices, as well as how teaching and, and the classroom can be the sort of centerpiece for, for a career that also incorporates design and writing and researching and publishing. And this is obviously something that, that I've been thinking a lot about and, and Paul and I kind of picked that apart a little bit. I'm a big fan of Paul and his work. As you'll hear early in the conversation, I have a vivid memory of seeing his blog in the early 2000s when I was first getting into design and have just really loved following his career and I'm really excited about the work he's doing now. So I was so glad to get to talk to him and hope that you enjoy this conversation with Paul Soelis. You know, I spent the last couple of days uh, kind of researching you, kind of making sure I was up to date on everything, thinking about what I wanted to talk to you about. And I saw that you actually studied architecture um, in your undergrad, which I somehow did not know. And so I kind of want to start with that a little bit. Um, did were you Was your ambition at the time to be an architect? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I fully intended to be an architect, which is, which just sounds so strange now. Yeah. Um, it's you know it, it's it's always with me. I think that idea that I that I wanted to be an architect will always stay with me, and it's probably somehow always in my work too. But I, I've kind of also sort of forgotten about it because yeah. it was so long ago. But yeah, I am um, in high school. I I was seriously considering a musical career. I played the violin pretty seriously, oh, wow. and um, I did. I did a summer program at Syracuse University for architecture, you know, one of these like summer high school programs. Uh, and um, it was intense. It was like a, a two month, it was a, a six or eight week thing um, up at Syracuse University where they, where they really just sort of throw you into exactly what they do with the freshmen in their five year architecture program. So there I was as this 11th grader, like my first time away from home by myself. And um, it was terrifying, honestly. But something about <laughs> that actually uh, enticed me. There was something compelling about how intense that was—the whole sort of romance and mythology of all-nighters, and which, which you know, now I think is terrible and unhealthy. But, <laughs> but back then, um, it. Beyond that, it was also something about space and form that touched me that mm -hmm. summer. Mm -hmm. and, and I went to school. I went to Cornell University for. 
uh, five years, or actually, I was there for six years, and I got a, a B arch. Yeah. So did you did you have a? Uh, let me think how to how to phrase this so this question makes sense. Did you have a interest in, uh, for lack of a better term, visual arts or design, or what was it about architecture as an eleventh grader that you were that you know kind of attracted you to that? You know, I I. I think it had something to do with, believe it or not, I haven't really articulated it like this before, but fantasy. You know, it's for for years before that, I would sit there at home and draw these elaborate floor plans of, I remember I had a zoo that I was drawing for like a couple of years. Yeah. And it was on vellum and I was painting the back and using ink pens on the front. I mean, what was I doing? But that's that's what I was doing. That was like my spare time mm -hmm. um, in junior high, making floor plans of elaborate houses. So, but they were really about fantasy. I think in, internally, I was telling stories through yeah. these yeah. floor plans. I was only doing it with floor plans. It wasn't like I was thinking about architecture with a capital A. Um, and I knew in the back of my mind, you know, that there was architecture out there, that there were people like Frank Lloyd Wright that I could be interested in. And so Syracuse and that program, wow, I've never talked about the Syracuse program before. This is so strange, uh -oh. but, but it's great. And so Syracuse was like my way to somehow legitimize this like quote unquote hobby that had uh that i was sort of obsessed with as a, as a child drawing and yeah. imagining and storytelling through through these drawings i mean that's so uh, this is actually really funny to hear because i was the exact literally the exact same way as a kid and really? i remember being in elementary school and um drawing these big elaborate maps uh on our driveway with like a sidewalk chalk oh wow um okay. and you know would map out these entire cities and then middle school those turned into floor plans and i i was you know designing houses and um schools and i remember uh like on the first day of school and you'd get like the student handbook and there would be a map of the school i would spend all my time just looking at these floor plans of the school and how the classrooms were set up and things like that yeah. and my my best friend growing up who was my neighbor also was interested in architecture and we we would spend our weekends together designing houses oh wow. <laughs> basically and that's uh, that's actually <laughs> no you were not alone and that's where my introduction to graphic design came in because we had this idea that we were going to start an architecture firm together <laughs> and we so then we started designing the logos and a yeah. website for it and then i realized that i actually like designing that stuff better than the floor plans that's kind of what happened to me as well i mean when i when i went to school for this uh when i finally got to cornell you know i loved it, it i you know i think i was kind of thriving there you know i really i really got into every part of it um but my thesis, my my fifth year, you know, undergrad thesis work that I did was all about drawing and storytelling. You know, it, yeah. it all came back to drawing. And this is, let's see, I graduated in 91. So, um, you know, this is pre, we weren't using computers for anything. There were computers there, but, but everything I did was hand-drawn and ink pens and all of that. And it was really about the practice of drawing 
the um, the tools that went into that, the sort of way stories could be told on surfaces. And if I think back on it now, that thesis that I did bears a lot of similarity in relation to many of the projects that I've been doing recently. Not well there, but sort of the more recent artistic projects that I've done in my practice. Okay, I want to come. I want to come back to that because ar architecture is a topic that comes up a lot in these conversations. I'm very interested in the relationship between architecture and graphic design. So I want to. I want to come back to that, but first I want to just kind of connect that connect 1991 you to today a little bit. So where did where were you introduced to graphic design or when did that kind of switch happen? Yeah, well, it happened slowly. And I, I have to say a little painfully too, you know, I, I think back on this trajectory of my career and I think there would have been easier ways to do this. I never thought <laughs> about, you know, like, yeah. oh, I should just go to grad school and get a degree in graphic design. That somehow never occurred to me. Um, even if it had occurred to me, I just, I don't think I, I wanted or needed school at that time. Um, I, I ended up, uh, working for a couple of years at the Brooklyn Museum, which was interesting, but really, um, uh, was, no, I wasn't really working as an architect or a graphic designer. It was a kind of in-between job, like first job in New York. Then after that, I got, I answered an ad in the New York Times and got, um, <laughs> job as the project manager for 3D projects at uh, a design firm, Donovan and Green. Oh, wow. um, and I was, and, and I got that position. And I didn't know what that meant to be a project manager <laughs> for 3D projects. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, I, but I got in there and somehow they wanted this, you know, 25 year old. And I was, again, terrified. And maybe there's a theme here because there, and I think there is something about sort of confronting fears or unfamiliar or uncertain situations and jumping in. Um, and so I did that for four years and that was, that was a really foundational sort of formative moment for me where I was introduced not just to graphic design as a discipline because I had no idea, but retail design, branding, exhibition design, graphic right. design, um, every element of design was co somehow coming into play in this firm, in this office, and it was a big office at that time, but they're smaller now. And um, besides that, I had the most incredible experience where I was thrown into proposal writing, negotiating, client mm. meetings, you know, sort of the, the business of right. design, which I didn't have a clue about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Somehow they trusted me and this 25 year old to take these things on. And, and that was great. That was, I was very fortunate. So do you think I, I've noticed this theme with a lot of the people that I've talked to about the people who have these really kind of interesting design careers that start to incorporate all these other elements besides just kind of traditional client designer projects mm -hmm. is that their background or their very early uh introduction to the field was kind of coming in through the back door a little bit they didn't go through the kind of normal steps mm -hmm. did you I'm, I'm curious kind of how your your background your interest in drawing and architecture connected to the work that then you were doing in these first jobs were you seeing connections and kind of how, how were you yeah your career going at that time 
I did. I saw the connections and they got me really excited, you know, because I was seeing them in a way that I hadn't seen in school. You know, here was this business, like a very successful business at that moment, where designers, designers who I'd never, of, of this type, who I'd never encountered before, who were using Adobe Illustrator, which was fairly new at that time. This yeah. is like early the mid nineties and using Adobe Illustrator to make these beautiful things that we were then getting manufactured onto signs or printing onto stationery. Right. And I was fascinated and I started the way it actually happened was I started just doing this work myself. I wasn't supposed to, I wasn't a graphic designer, but I would get drawings from, one of the senior designers, and I would realize that some changes would have to be made and I would make them myself. <laughs> nice. yeah. And so I actually learned how to use Adobe Illustrator in like 1993 in, in, or four or whatever, in, at Donovan and Green, updating other designers' drawings. You know? and so it was, it was a very like in the moment, on the job, this needs to get done, I'm just gonna do it because it would be faster. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I was kind of hooked. And I remember this one moment where I went into Michael Donovan's office and I mean, really, what, what was I thinking? And I said, you know what? I think maybe I could design one of these products. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Next time you could let me do this little part of this. And, and I think he was just like, sure, whatever, you know, like, let's, let's talk about it. And, and that's gradually what happened, you know, that, that, that's, that's amazing. What, that ended up happening. And by the end, I was still a project manager, but designing things. But my next position at Future Brand, I was hired as a designer. Okay. So I, all right. So I don't want to, I don't want to skip around or skip over too much, but how did you go from, I, I don't mean to ask this so simply about, you know, how did this thing lead to the next thing, but how do you go from being this kind of project manager to getting hired as a designer to then when, when and how did you decide to go out on your own? Cause you worked for yourself for, yeah, for many years. Yeah. Um, well, how, you know, how did that, how did I get that job? You know, <laughs> I remember I had an interview with Claude Salzberger, who was a creative director at Future Brand, uh, at coffee shop on Union Square. Oh my goodness. Um, and I don't even remember what I showed him. I did somehow put a portfolio together. Okay, that was my next question. Yeah. What, how, like, what was your portfolio <laughs> at the time? Well, I, um, you know, Future Brand at that moment was called Diefenbach Elkins. And John Elkins was a really heavy duty, like business and brand strategy guy. And uh, Diefenbach was, was the sort of landor legacy. And um, they were interested in somebody who could bring strategy into a design process. And I got a good dose of that at Donovan and Green. I was really interested in how, um, how design could be strategic, whatever, whatever that meant in whatever situation. So, you know, I, I had the, the fortune, the privilege at Donovan and Green to work on naming projects and branding and strategic documents for all sorts of clients, a lot of which, you know, we were kind of just making up at the time. Future Brand, I, what I saw at Future Brand was that there was a whole industry and, and business around brand strategy. And this became like the next hurdle for me, the next, the next yeah. leap. Yeah. And whatever it is that I showed Claude, he was somehow convinced that I could come in um, cheap labor. I don't know. And, uh, and so I skipped over to Future Brand and I was only there for a couple of years. But then, um, but then I ended up leaving to start uh, 
it wasn't Sulala Studio at the time. I didn't know. Should I get into that? Or... Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it, it, this is. I mean, I'm already kind of starting to make connections. Mm. You know, the, I, I'm selfishly thinking about this in my own position as someone who's, you know, essentially working for myself for the first time ever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And had always done freelance work on the side and just assumed that going solo was you just do more of that freelance work and right. not realizing that it's not just a matter of doing more but there's this whole business side that you yeah know, I'm, I'm figuring out and so you know hearing about project manager of 3d projects you were able to kind of get some of that but yeah so how did you decide to kind of go out on your own well you know here's the thing i think I think I was actually a pretty good project manager. I think I was good at the business end yeah, of things, yeah. probably better than I ever was as a as a designer. I oh, think that might still be true. Yeah, I mean, there's something about managing clients that, I mean, I've gotten a lot of feedback through the years that clients feel somehow reassured or that I'm, you know, taking care yeah. that, and, and I think not not everyone figures out that balance or whatever that balance is that you figure out somehow the client relation part of it was working in my favor. And I realized that, um, you know, I saw that I saw that happening at Future Brand. Anyway, I ended up starting to do freelance work while I was at Future Brand. And I had a friend who approached me and she had a client. She was a uh, much older than I was and a, and a photo editor. And she said, um, here, let's do this project together for a photographer. And I said, okay, and we did it. and. I'm really sort of condensing the story here, but at one point she said, okay, I found us an office. <laughs> okay. And I said, what do you mean? She said, I found space in Tribeca, let's rent it. And I said, but we don't have clients. And she said, it doesn't matter, let's just jump in and do this. And oh wow, I kind of you know, freaked out and said yes. And, and I stayed at Future Brand for a little while and I would work all day. I was working really hard and I would leave at 9 p.m. and go down to, Hudson Street in Tribeca and go into the office and we would work all night on freelance work. Oh, that's she, amazing. She was picking up the clients, you know, and then we were doing the work together and it was kind of a crazy time. And at some point I decided I should just do this, you yeah. know, and I left Future Brand. It was only after like two years or so. But. Okay. That's so interesting. I'm so I, this question is going to be a little bit of a detour from from the sure. thread we're following, but I I a lot of my early interest in design happened in the kind of mid two thousands, um, which is right as I was kind of uh, finishing high school, starting starting college, and this was right at the kind of height of blogging, and I remember my early introduction to you and your work was through your website where you had this blog in addition to your your studio and the the orange border um of your website is something that i remember very very vividly <laughs> it's still there <laughs> i know i i pulled it up this morning just to make sure yeah yeah um so i'm uh, the reason i bring that up is i'm interested in so the reason i bring it up is because my first introduction to you was through your writing and your blogging just as much yeah. as through your design work. And I'm interested in where that came in or how that started, uh, how you started writing or thinking that writing was a part of what you did. Yeah. Well, you know what, it actually, that, that's a great question and it, it is part of the trajectory because I'll just sort of skip over the, 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 
that moment when when we went out on our own and started this this little design office uh, for about a couple of years for about three years. At the point that I left, I ended up leaving and deciding I really wanted to do this on my own, and that's when I started Sue Level Studio, and that was October 2001. So if you think about that moment, okay. that was a very yeah. sort of you know strange moment in New York City, but yeah. also for me personally because I was uh, you know trying trying this out completely on my own, and it was just me in a in a tiny office, um, and at that moment. I decided I needed a website, you know, like I had to have a website yeah. and, uh, for, it's a long story, but for whatever reasons, we didn't have a website. I mean, this was still really pretty early yeah. on in the face yeah. of like, everybody's got to have some kind of web presence. So I did that. And my, the first version of my site didn't have, um, the blog. It was like a standard portfolio, but I forget exactly when, but it was a couple of years later when I updated the site and I said, you know what? I want a place to write here. I want to be able to post things and I would like to be in control of that. You know, yeah. I don't want it to be a, I forget what was around it. Maybe it wasn't Tumblr, but whatever it was at that moment. Um, and I hadn't been writing before then, you know, I, I, I think of that as a very specific moment when I felt like I started to have a different kind of an audience because of the internet. Yeah. And that was something that happened later, you know, it was something I would say also probably bef right before when you found me, <laughs> it was mid-2000s, <laughs> because I think I updated that site in 2005 or six, and I had uh, an employee, a designer working for me, Eric, who, who rebuilt the site as a blog, I think he used WordPress. Oh, wow. And I remember that moment so clearly of what it meant to broadcast, you know, yeah. so to post something. And, and then, so if that's a kind of marker, you know, sort of before and after the idea of having some kind of public presence through the internet, that really was that. It was that moment of starting the blog. Mm -hmm. So I didn't really answer your question about writing because I, I sort of told the story of how I got to having a blog, but it was really at that moment forward that writing became significant to me as part of my practice. That's so, so you had not really written I wasn't writing. before you had a blog. <laughs> No. I mean, you know, there may have been some writings in notebooks or journals or sketchbooks or whatever, but it, what was what was absolutely different and significant about that moment was the idea of an audience, a different right. kind of audience. Right. That, that had never, I'd never had that before. Did that change, yeah. did that change the type of design work that you did or the types of clients you did? Did you find that having a blog or writing was actually having an influence on the work? I don't know if it had an influence on the work itself, on the client work. What did end up happening was that blog became a place for me to do other things besides write. I would write and post things that I was interested in. I remember this one moment when I found the MTA Massimo Vignelli guidelines in the office where I was renting space. It was Michael Donovan's copy from his time with uh, Vignelli um, when he worked for him. And I remember finding that and opening it up. We've since now gone to look for that again, can't find it, like oh, some yeah. storage space. <laughs> yeah. I remember opening that book up and going to one of the pages and it's still there on my website someplace and deciding that I was just gonna copy this page uh, as an exercise in order to figure out what his grid was. And so, you know, these are like the kinds of things you might think about doing in school. 
I was doing it on my own and I was finding that doing it in public yeah. and posting something like that and then getting immediately getting feedback. This is pre Twitter. So people were leaving comments there right. and I would excessively check right. you know, what kind of conversation can I have with people about these things. So the blog was not just a place to write, not just a place for me to post things, but I was starting to actually find conversations and community there in a yeah. way that I hadn't before. And of course, add Twitter and Facebook to that. And, you know, it just sort of explodes from there. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, I for the for the 50th episode, uh, I had Michael Beirut interview mm. me about my one year of podcasting. And, and the reason that I asked him to do it is because Design Observer was kind of my first introduction to Oh, yeah. the design profession and he asked kind of what it was about that writing that was so attractive to me and you know we kind of articulated that I was this suburban kid who had never met a graphic designer and it wasn't that I was interested in critical theory or design criticism but it was just this community that was built around blogging yeah. Uh, yeah. and seeing that there were other people who are interested in these same things um, yeah. so that I totally relate to to what you're saying. But the other thing that you said that I had not thought about is how this audience or this community allowed for alternative practices or alternative projects that were outside of clients that now you yeah. had this place where you could do experiments and right. post them. Right. Uh, and, you know, that kind of leads in, I know we're, you know, we're skipping some time again, but one of the things that really is interesting to me about your work is how your work is all of these other things besides just kind of traditional client projects. Right. And, you know, a couple of years ago, you, you kind of, you should talk about this, not me, but you kind of changed your studio into this thing called counter practice. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm interested in that transition and what you were thinking about and what counter practice is and how it's different than the studio before. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Okay. I do. I, I lived it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I know this, that's, it's all, those are all great thoughts and questions because you are actually helping to sort of connect all the dots here in some ways that, that I hadn't thought about before, like the significance of the blog yeah. um, and what that meant to me at that time. I knew it, but now to like talking about it, it's kind of reassuring. Um, yeah, there was, there was a moment, um, a very specific moment where I, I started to understand that I was getting kind of burned out from the work that I was doing. Mm -hmm. You know, Sulela Studio was successful. I, oh, you know, always had more clients than I could um, uh, accommodate. I was working around the clock. Uh, my idea or sort of um, my understanding of what success was had a lot to do with quantity, you know, like how many clients can I have? How much can I charge? How much bigger can the projects get? And whatever sort of distorted idea of success that was or, or whatever that meant or for me in order, or, you know, whatever I needed at that time in order to make Sulele Studio a success ended up taking its, its toll and I needed to make some kind of break and that's exactly what i did and and I, I tell this i try to tell this story carefully because i also understand that i was in a very very uh privileged right. place at that moment to be able to say i'm going to turn off the success you know yeah however put that, and try something else that's i don't actually even like to tell that story because i feel like that's something i needed to do and i had the privilege to do it it's right. not right. something that i 
like to get on a stage and say like everybody should do this yeah you know, follow, yeah. follow your dreams you know um but that in fact is actually what i did <laughs> i <laughs> built a conference yeah. and gave this talk which was called uh, uh oh, right. Systems, yeah scenes from a designer's counter practice i think was the name of that talk and um that was me at that moment, and that Tumblr is still out there. I think it's counterpractice.tumblr.com. That talk was me trying to figure this out right at that moment. I hadn't started counterpractice yet. I, I didn't know how my, I hadn't started teaching. I, I wasn't really calling myself an artist at that moment or that I had an artistic practice or anything like that. So that was me at that moment trying to figure out what does it mean to uh, put the client work aside and ask questions like, what do I do as a designer? Right. Uh, a client. What do I do when I'm not getting paid to design? Right. And, and I had never had an opportunity to really ask those questions. And so I did. I tried that for a little while. Um, so, yeah. so, I mean, it's this is kind of all the stuff that I like talking to people about, actually. And it's yeah. really interesting that you kind of have this uh, very clear break or this very clear kind of transition into asking these questions so mm -hmm. from let me think how to kind of phrase this from the outside of someone kind of looking at your work counter mm -hmm. practice seems like exactly what we've been talking about is that uh compared to your old studio counter practice was a place where you could be a not just a designer, but also an editor or a publisher, and that the printed web project could actually come out of the same place as a traditional design project. Was that yeah. okay? Yeah, absolutely. That's that's what ha that's what ended up happening. Um, I got at some point. I heard that the new museum was starting an incubator, you know, for art and design and technology, and I. I remember I heard about it on Twitter and then I applied and I thought, all right, maybe, maybe I should go sit in this new ink, um, you know, uh, incubator at the new museum and see what happens. <laughs> this became like a like a physical place where I might go try to figure this out. And I remember I showed up for the interview with, um, the deputy director of the new museum and Julia Kaginsky, who was, who's still currently, you know, the director and co-founder of, of, uh, new ink. And um, I sat down and, and they asked, they said to me, are you having a midlife crisis? <laughs> you know, why do you want to come in here? Yeah. And, and we laughed and, um, and I told them about this idea, which was, I want to start a new studio and I'm going to call it counter practice. And that came directly out of that talk. And I said, and I don't really know what it is, but I want to use this time and this space uh, here in the studio, which very significantly was collaborative, no walls. There really were no, and still are not cubicles. It's like big long tables and everybody's sort of in it together. And I wanted that equivalent to what I had discovered online, which was a big open space where everybody's bumping into each other right. and ideas are bumping into each other and everybody's sharing. And, you know, I'm, I'm making it sound sort of more ideal than it was, but that was, that was the idea going in. So I took that year to, to start thinking about what is about what, what could a counter practice look like mm -hmm. and the web and everything started to form right around that time. And also I started to teach right at that moment. Okay. So did you, uh, so you went into the the new museum incubator knowing that counter practice was kind of 
what you wanted to think about and work on. That idea was already in your mind. I The idea was there, but I think it was like three days before that interview when I said, you know, I should call this something. Okay. And I remember meeting with my friend Wendy and said, I don't know what to call it. Shouldn't this thing have a name? Yeah. And she, she points, she actually like pulled up that talk counterpractice.tumblr.com and she pointed at it and she said, the name should come out of this. Okay. And I said, Oh my God, it's counterpractice. That's yeah. it. <laughs> so anyway, that's yeah. I, so yes, I knew, but it really was right at that moment. And I think there is a sort of larger theme here, maybe in this story that I've been telling, which is sort of not always knowing what you're doing, but deciding to take three steps forward anyway, right. with without a full understanding of what's about to happen. Right. Um, somehow that somehow that works. Yeah. So do you does does counter practice? I have I have kind of three questions around that. Um, mm -hmm. Does counterpractice do client work, or do you do client work as counterpractice? Um, in theory, yes, but in practice, right now, <laughs> okay, no, okay, <laughs> no. I've actually, I've actually sort of stopped doing client work. Okay, um, yeah. So at that moment, it was very, it was significant to me to be able to talk about writing and research, independent projects, teaching, and client work those four areas would always surround and be feeding um, or be the output of counter practice. And, and I still stand by that and it was true, but I, I have discovered that turning the volume or the dial down on the client work actually doesn't hurt that formula. It actually, or that, that territory that I sketched out, it actually makes it a little bit stronger. Right. I have a lot of space right now because of teaching yeah. to, focus on those other things and those are those are what I call my practice now. Okay. And so then is I I I would be a bad interviewer if I don't if we don't talk about library of the printed web oh. <laughs> and how that fits into this a little bit. Is that I'm I'm curious the relationship between the printed web to counter practice and mm -hmm. kind of how that how that project came out of all of this also. Yeah, Library of the Printed Web uh, was just a project that that I was working on um, in 2013, which is right before New Ink. I kind of came into New Ink with that as a new project, okay. as, as a thing that I wanted to continue to work on at New Ink. Um, I think I had done the first issue at that point. And, um, uh, you know, I, I I think at that moment I wasn't sure what that project was. You know, am I a publisher? Am I a curator? Um, I'm certainly using graphic design here in order to make these things, but they didn't feel like it didn't feel like a graphic design project at all. You know, yeah. simply using graphic design as a means. So um, I never had really a clear understanding of it. I just kept doing it. <laughs> <laughs> right. And that sort of connects back to that that previous thought that I had of just sort of continuing even in even with uncertainty as part of it um, to the point where graphic where where library of the printed web ended up taking on a kind of strength and power of its own because of the community that was forming around it and the discourse that it was generating at some point in the last 
year and a half, I began to realize that Library of the Printed Web was actually, you know, probably the most important thing that I was working on here, right. much so than like counter practice as a thing or me as a person. The project was gaining a kind of recognition and um, uh, people all over the world relate to it, contact me all, all the time about it to tell me I'm writing about this for my dissertation. Um, I have a work, will you, can I send it to you? Can it become part of the library? Mm -hmm. Curators telling me, you know, I'm putting on a show. Can I put some of these publications in the show? So, so this is where it got really exciting for me because I could, I could then take a project like that and connect it to things that I was doing at school and how what I was teaching. Yeah, and other projects that that I'm working on that sort of connect to or come out of Library of the Printed Web. Okay, I mean, so that th that actually kind of connects nicely because my kind of last question about your background or your story before we kind of talk about these things more generally was the teaching part and kind of how teaching fits into all of this. And I, I know you teach classes at RISD that seem very related to the printed web, but I'm, I'm interested in how you think about those intersections between being an educator and also a kind of practicing designer or, or, or maker or artist yeah yeah well you know like everything else in this story i started teaching um almost by accident yeah. not quite knowing you know i remember i remember as as part of the application for RISD, they said supply us with a a, a a statement on your teaching philosophy and i was and i thought and i panicked like what is that you know like i don't know if i have one and so you know, after calming down a little bit, I started to realize that, you know, this is what a pedagogy is or could be. And, you know, maybe it's really just what I think about in my own practice, you know, about experimentation and how everything counts and hard work and all sorts of things that I like to think of as the sister Corita Kent um, list that John Cage right. also used. You know, that's frequently what I what I like to present or lay out as a kind of, if I had a scaffolding that adds up to a pedagogy, it would be that list, mm -hmm. and specific things on that list. Um, so gradually, as I, as I taught more and more, I began to realize that um, teaching and the classroom studio, studio classroom space was, was an actual physical place with a changing cast of character that allowed certain connections to happen between writing, um, making, yeah. um, graphic design as a discipline, theory, uh, ideas around experimental publishing and making public that I was developing on, on my own outside of that. All of these things could start to cross and intersect in yeah. the classroom studio. Yeah. And it doesn't happen with everyone, but all students are somehow participating in different ways. Right. And some of, some of these courses that I teach do that in different ways. And the elective that I developed at RISD, Experimental Publishing Studio, and I'm about to teach it for the fourth time, um, really becomes a way for me to work some of these ideas out. Yeah, yeah. I, it's so funny that you say that, because I, I literally was thinking about that exact idea earlier this week and um i uh, you know i'm teaching adjunct at a couple couple different schools at both undergraduate and graduate level and had a really good class on monday where the discussion everything was just kind of flowing nicely and it was connecting to things that i was 
working on in my own work and mm -hmm. and i was noticing how all these things were coming together and and i had never seen teaching or the classroom setting as a as actually the nucleus of all these things that i'm interested in that there's yeah. graphic design there is writing there is kind of uh criticism and theory and making and it was all coming together in this one one classroom yeah um yeah. It's, it's kind of like magic when that happens yeah and, and also it isn't magic like you have to work to make that happen right right <laughs> students have to work and sometimes the students aren't sure what they're doing i'm not sure what i'm doing um but yeah, really i think of teaching now being an educator like that that this is like a dream come true you know it's it's i realize that this is sort of in this long drawn out story that I've been describing here, teaching is actually what I was headed towards. Oh, interesting. You know, I, I never knew that. I didn't know that 20 years ago at Donovan and Green, yeah. but I do feel in many ways like, okay, I have no desire to go back to that kind of right. work. I'm right. thankful that I have that opportunity now to bring into this oh, place, which I, I want to continue. Yeah, that's great. Have, have you found that, that revelation or those things that are happening in the classroom how are those changing all of your other projects whether it's writing or the printed web or or your kind of independent project that you're working on well um what's happening is actually a very efficient and kind of uh sort of operational thing which is i just have more time and space to develop <laughs> those other activities right you know and teaching doesn't feel like a distraction Mm -hmm. from that. When I was commuting back and forth between New York and Providence, it was a distraction. Unfortunately, I started to think of teaching as a jobs at times because it was sort of splitting up my week in half and my life. And um, at some point, once I got hired full time at RISD, I thought, let me try this. Let me try actually moving up here after, you know, 26 years living full time in New York City and um, see what happens. And yeah. Sure enough, like the actual, the, the physical space and the amount of time that I have in my day and in the week to, um, to devote to writing and curatorial projects for Rhizome, mm -hmm. to uh, developing my own printed web publications, um, to do whatever kind of reading and research that I want to do, um, that has, I feel like it's flourish it's flourishing here it's thriving yeah. in a way that um i hadn't quite expected you know i thought that there was going to be a real trade-off because i wasn't going to have the stimulation of new york city around me all the right, time right right in fact that has been the thing that is so great about this movie <laughs> all that yeah. stimulation i can go back you know i can go back any weekend that i want and and get that stimulation when i right. need it right but here i've i feel like i've got a really um good working place that, i have i have a question i have a que i have a series of questions kind of around that that i'm not totally sure how to ask so i'm going to ask you a series of questions just back to back and you can kind of pick them apart how you want to because individually these questions are, are not going to make sense um so one i'm, I'm thinking about this idea of of what I'm calling the expanded practice, the kind of modes that you're working in. Um, and so I'm interested just kind of very simply how you define your work now and, and what you call yourself. Like, you know, do you consider yourself a designer or an artist? Like if you're at a party, what, what do you, you know, kind of 
call yourself. Um, and I want to kind of connect that back to that, what we were talking about very early about the kind of practicing designers that come in kind of from the side um, mm -hmm. who don't go through the, the kind of traditional design steps. Now that you're teaching students who are essentially going through those steps, how do you introduce them to all these other ways to be a designer outside of the client designer relationship without talking about what you mentioned when you kind of switched to counter practice and knowing that was privileged that right. there are other ways to work um some are good some are bad not everyone has to do this but just kind of opening their eyes to, to feel bigger than what they think it is right well exactly what you just said opening <laughs> up um the understanding of what this field is even sometimes opening up what it means what graphic design means or what it means to be a graphic designer even and this goes back to the counterpart of counter practice, even challenging what it, you know, whether or not graphic design is the thing for them. Right. You know, I have students, seniors, undergrads, you know, who are like openly questioning whether or not they want to be a graphic designer. And instead of sort of saying, well, you know, graphic design can work for you. You just have to use it this way. I'm, I'm encouraging that. I'm, I'm embracing that. I'm trying every opportunity that I can to, to open up, our ideas and understanding of what this means, of what graphic design means, mm -hmm. so that so that a fuller range, a, a wider view, um, uh, is available to students. I I, I don't think um, it's my position or business to 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 um, suggest or or tell a student what path or direction they need to go down. You know, like you need to get this kind of job and then do this right. and they be a graphic designer. I'm just not interested in that. I'm much more interested in cultivating an environment in school that is about, that encourages curiosity. Yeah. Um, the things that I mentioned earlier that were, were part of my development and, and um, how I evolved, which, which was all about curiosity, developing confidence, um, being able to be comfortable with uncertainty, um, being having having enough confidence and um, um, whatever that means for someone individually to face situations that maybe don't always feel comfortable or or even um, inclusive in some cases. Yeah. You know? and, and there's lots of that going on in the school as well as what does it mean uh, as a woman, person of color leaving our school right. and entering an industry where, where the challenges are going to be very different right. for someone else, for someone like me or, or, or other people. So um, these are these are questions that I'm still, you know, struggling with and thinking about, like, how do I, exactly as you put it, how do I communicate, um, how do I guide students towards a life or a practice that is going to happen after they leave. Here. Right. Yeah. You know, that doesn't sound like I'm, um, well, in a way that's about the student. Right. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. And I'm asking this question, you know, somewhat selfishly as, as a, essentially a new educator. Mm -hmm. And so I've spending a lot of time reflecting on my own undergraduate education and how specific that was um 
from everything of this is what a graphic designer does. You work at a design studio and you work with clients. And we had classes that were about, you know, giving client presentations and things. And so I graduated school thinking that was kind of the only option all the way to, you know, really being trained in modernism and that that was good design and everything outside of that wasn't good design. Um, And now I'm, teaching and thinking about that and how do i not do that but also teach them everything that they or not everything but also tell them things about what they do need to know you know what i mean there are there are things from that that are valuable and not to say you don't need to know any of this right um so i don't know you can kind of answer this in your own experience or kind of theoretically and ideally if if you would like but how do you kind of find that balance of this is what a traditional graphic designer does. These are the things you need to know, but it's not the only way. Yeah. You know, I don't have the answer to that right now. (laughs) I I feel like this is exactly my biggest, this is my biggest challenge right now as, as an educator. And I think for anyone who's awake and trying to think about what it means to be a graphic design educator or design or an art school educator today, at least here in my department here at RISD, these are, this is exactly what we're thinking about. How do you also, and we're not talking enough about this here at RISD, but I want to, um, how do we decolonize our education and the curriculum? How do we say, look, yes, here, here is a set, here's a canon, you know, here's a set of rules or that in the past have traditionally added up to an idea about what graphic design is, but how do we challenge that? How do we take that apart? How do we, present alternatives to that. Honestly, I don't feel like we're always totally equipped to do that. When I say we, I mean, you know, a 100% white full-time faculty, mm. graphic design, you know, which is, which is a problem. Yeah. And, and, and I'm now part of that. It's like, I can't point fingers. Like I'm now part of that right. and trying to work on, on shifting and changing that and, um, and changing how we perceive what is known to be the tradition, the legacy, the canon, all of the things that we think of as, as the, as the curriculum, um, here, at least as, you know, the legacy of, of RISD graphic design, which is very heavy on Dutch and Swiss and all sorts of, you know, Northern European flavor. So, right. so this is what, this is what we're working on. You know, we're taking small steps, but I want to take bigger steps. And, um, and I think it has a lot to do with developing a faculty and bringing people in as guests, as visitors, um, who reflect this, this kind of thinking. Yeah. I mean, that, this leads into a question that I ask everybody. I just have a couple kind of quick questions to kind of wrap all of this up, but this is a question that I ask everyone that I think is related exact. It's a hundred percent related to what you just said. I'm very curious what you think is missing in the contemporary design discourse or what, what do designers and not just educators or or in kind of uh students Mm -hmm. but the design profession at large what are the topics or issues that are not being talked about or written about yeah right now well um i would i would say that there are a lot of things that i'm thinking about writing about and talking about in that connect to the art world to the technology world in a way sometimes um, that I don't always see reflected in our very small graphic design discourse. And I'm talking about AI, I'm talking about, you know, automation, I'm talking about, um, 
bias in automation yep. and um, uh, AR and VR and all the things that are changing how we perceive the world and how we're building and making the world yeah. and even like who we are as human beings. Yeah. That sounds so grand and so big, but I do believe that there are fundamental issues coming up right now. For instance, the YouTube videos that James Bridle just yeah. wrote about, and I saw that you wrote about that on your blog. I'm absolutely fascinated by this. Are we talking about that with students in that kind of a way? Whatever the issues happen to be around how are algorithms affecting and changing content and how it's being perceived by children in this case <laughs> on YouTube. Um, not really, not always. I mean, I'm not, I don't think we're, th we're necessarily, um, we might be talking about it in relation to design, maybe in relation to graphic design, but I'm not sure that it's coming in and changing our curricula, you know, right, I'm right. sure that we're actually, letting it affect what we think graphic design is yeah. maybe they are i don't know what do you think about that? i i mean i think that's a great <laughs> these are all the things i think about all the time And this you know when i mentioned the the class that i had earlier this week that i felt like everything was kind of really going well this is the thing we were talking about i we were talking yeah. about automation and and artificial intelligence and james bridle's piece and what does right. this mean for a designer and you know we we didn't come to any clear answers and i don't know if i you know i think i kind of got them thinking about it in a way that maybe this is actually a design problem and not design in the traditional sense of we're making artifacts that look a certain way and how does this change how these things look but you know our design processes need to change and i think that for me that's the thing i i feel like i'm thinking about a lot is the parts of design, graphic design proper that need to be examined is the process and the culture that these things are coming out of and going into. And yeah. less, uh, let's have a critique of this poster and whether the kerning is good and whether you pick the right typeface. Mm -hmm. Those things, yeah, you know, we can have that conversation, but I don't know if that's what this is really all about in the end. Right. Yeah. I think even just sometimes identifying what some of these issues are and just putting them into the territory yeah. so that students recognize that it's on your mind. So maybe it should be on their mind or even the other way, which is this is on their minds. Why am I not right. considering it or integrating it into what I'm teaching or what I'm thinking about in relation right. to design? So, yeah. So when we think about what's missing from design discourse, Sometimes, you know, sometimes I cringe when I see, you know, like here, this is graphic designs. This is the graphic design industry's reaction or response to something like, like AR or um, AI. So I'm not sure that it should always be reduced to that. Sometimes right. I think it's about opening up our discourse to incorporate others and welcome mm -hmm. in other kinds of people and opinions and you know, and this is where I start to think about how graphic design or any discipline that's tightly, that's been tightly formed and controlled um, as, as like a set of standards, like that maybe we need to sort of think about it becoming more porous. Yeah, yeah. I, we are speaking the exact same language there. I feel like that's become kind of the recurring theme of this podcast kind of accidentally is that 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 border of graphic design is not as uh, 
airtight as a lot of people sometimes think that it is. Um, And it leads into, I have kind of two and a half more questions. Um, But one of them is directly related to what you were just saying. And I'm interested in what you think designers in that, in that kind of defined space can learn from these other fields, whether it's art or technology or, um, you know, kind of media criticism, even, um, how can those things, what can kind of designers take from, from them to start to break out of that, that field? Well, bit? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. I don't know specifically what we need to take, but I do know that if we're going to look at a future that includes climate change and, um, other scary sort of grand challenges like that, that we need to be better equipped. Yeah. And I don't feel that, um, equipping ourselves, anyone equipping oneself with a kind of single discipline or sort of the bubble or tightly controlled idea of what a discipline or an industry or a particular industry is. I just don't feel like that's enough anymore. I feel like, um, I feel like, and it's not just my feeling, but I, I see that we are in dire need of, um, a much more, a much broader, a set of tools for confronting these challenges. Right. You know, we're not going to solve climate change as a graphic designer, but maybe we can think about what that means if we open up our range, our view of what we're perceiving, of what we're seeing, yeah. to include um, ideas and perspectives and opinions that are outside of what we know. Yeah. And so, so it's less about what can we learn from these particular industries and more about perception and view. You yeah. know, and that porousness that we were just talking about also applying sort of to who you are as a person yeah. and how you learn and how you remain open and curious. And if you think about our current political state, you see like that's absolutely not the case. People are shutting down. You right. know, they're they're putting up more walls, literally, you know, and, <laughs> or, and yeah. tightly controlling what and, and controlled vocabularies like we don't we don't say it this way. We say it this way. I'm um, thinking about my next printed web project potentially being about the EPA scrubbing at Trump's uh, sort of command, scrubbing the phrase climate change, those particular words from thousands of web pages and documents online. You know, what does it mean to control a vocabulary like that? And, and it is, and, and to, um, define these territories, literally these borders and these walls in, um, in a heavier way. In a, and so anyway, I think, I think that's more of a spirit or a sort of dynamic that I'm thinking more and more about yeah. and less like specific ideas, but that, yeah, I love that. That's, that's so great. My, my last question this is a question that I kind of end on with everybody. I'm very interested in, it's kind of a two-part question. Who are the writers, critics, designers, artists who have really inspired you and, and your practice and how you think about these things? And then kind of B, like part B of that question is, what's that reading list that you give to, to people who are interested in these modes of work that you're like, these are the required readings or people that you should know about? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, that's, yeah, that's tough because I don't have a reading list. I can just, yeah, sort yeah of I, know. Out. <laughs> I know. I know it's the hardest question. I apologize. Sometimes. Yeah. I guess it is hard, but maybe, maybe something comes out of it. I mean, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about, um, 
well, I'll just use it as an opportunity to promote something. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> great. Writing. But the fact that next week, uh, and this relates directly to uh, what we were just speaking about, next week I'm going to be a speaker at a conference called the Cybernetics Conference in New York, and the website is cybernetics.social. And Wendy Chun from Brown will be speaking, Allison Parrish, um, Mackenzie Work, and many others. And it's being put together by Sam Hart and Melanie Hoff and a bunch of others. It's it's it looks, and I'm not just saying this because I was invited to speak, but it looks super interesting. This is a conference I want to attend, and I'm actually writing the talk right now. I would, as part of this conference, which is about information theory, information systems, systems of perception, many of the things that, I, that we were just sort of like touching on, um, and all of that as it relates to technology and media. Um, as part of that conference, they have set up a, an online library. Oh, wow. um, so it's the cybernetics library, I think is, is what it's being called. And I think it's being put together by Sarah Hamerman. Um, and she, and that, that library, that list, that library, I mean, I would just go to that website and take a okay. look there. Everything on that list, not everything, but there are things on that list. Uh, everybody from Edward Tufte to, um, Bruno Latour to, nice. uh, um, uh, Mackenzie Works Hacker Manifesto. All of these things are there, and I think it's like a couple hundred titles. So that actually is a great. It's not okay, necessarily. Nice. It's like a. It's a library, but that's that's where my that's where my head is at yeah. these days. Is it's not a graphic design sort of best of. It's it's how can I how can I find reading lists and libraries that stretch me in some way and keep that sort of right there at the edges of my studio and my practice. Yeah. Always, always, you know. That's great. I love that. Paul, thank you so much for this. This was so fun. I could talk to you for another hour yeah, about these things easily. I, this was fun. So thank you so much for, uh, for talking with me. Thanks for super questions and a really great conversation. This episode was recorded on November 11th, 2017. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.